0: All right, why don't we uh, find our way to our seats, and we'll say a prayer and get rolling. Okay, let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, through your Son, you have promised us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Govern our hearts by your Holy Spirit that in our daily need, and especially in all time of temptation, we may seek your help, and by a true and lively faith in your word, obtain all that you have promised. Through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. How's everybody doing? Good. Any questions? Anything you need to talk about? Okay. All right. Um... So this week we have the fifth word from the cross, from John 19. There's a couple of words that come right in, right in sequence at the end of uh, John chapter 19 there. We had um, Jesus gives his mother to John, the beloved disciple, and then the disciple to, Je- to his mother, son and mother. Um, then we get this word, and then I, I think it's next week, is, uh, verse 30, which follows right immediately after this, which is, um, "...it is finished." Um, so now, uh, there's a couple of ways we can go at this, and I have an idea of where I'd like to go with it, but, uh, I'd like to first see how, see how you feel about it. Um, take a look at, th- take, start with the, the meditation that we had from Romanus Cesario. What did you think? Any thoughts? Um, it was unexpected. Okay. What did you expect? Okay. traditionally I turn it, but unexpectedly two ways. Um expanding the mm-hmm. eye terrorists to thirsting for our soul, but then specifically to I would say a concern that he has in his position of the lack of undershadows. Yeah. Is everybody, everybody else on board with what with what Carol just said? Okay, so there are really two things, two things that. Oh, that what, did well, what, what did she say? What did you say? What was the uh, last Oh, that specifically his concern, I'd say, and his position for the. Did I say lack? There's you there's said lack. A, yep. Lack or as a of under shepherds. The need for under shepherds. Yeah, priests, yeah. right? Um, yeah, So, so he really. I mean, there really are two things that he says. One is. Jesus thirsts for our souls, and people who un- enter into certain vocations satisfy his thirst. In particular, he was saying, um, priests do that. Now, it's it's an interesting thing. What did you think about it? Uh, what w- what was your reaction? So it was unexpected for Carol. How about the rest of you, Julie? Yeah, I think it was unexpected too. Um, I guess I only I mean, thought about it as like fulfilling scripture. Okay. And, You, yeah. <laughs> so you're so you, no, nope. Don't uh, you're not you're not alone there. I actually I looked I looked up this Aquinas quote because I was really curious. I said I have never heard this before either. And um, this, I I would categorize this so there's a, a disparaging term that's um, used among theologians, and this would be what I would call an exegetical leap, right? So he's reading he's reading he's reading along, and then without without much prompting from the text. He jumps, right? But he bases it on the authority of, of the church fathers. So Aquinas does say that Jesus on the cross has an ardent desire for the salvation of the human race. But for Aquinas, in his meditation, his his lectures on John, it's actually, I mean, so it, it, he does say that, but he's, he em- does emphasize the physical character of Jesus' thirst. So Aquinas was part of a, uh, a school of interpreting the scriptures, which was very Rigid and prescriptive, right? So you have to um, interpret it in, in in four ways. There are four, four ways of understanding every any text. Um, and I'm not going to remember them all, but the first one is literal. So literally he thirsts, but then you also have to have among them a spiritual interpretation. So what could that be? And what's interesting in reading Aquinas um, is that the way he talks about these things is often well, this is one way you could take it, or maybe you could take it this way, or maybe you could take it this way, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, this is what this means, which is really the question that we're after. You know, what, what does... We don't say that the meaning is sort of f- free-floating, um, open to, you know, being blown here and there by whatever, whatever whims you're, you're, uh, you're entertaining. It's, there's a meaning, and, and we have to ask the question, what is that? So... He, he founds this on the fathers. But then he, he's particularly interested in saying that um, if, you, if you become a priest, or if, you, if you're interested in becoming a priest, you're going to satisfy this thirst that Jesus has for souls. So it is kind of, he's got this very per- particular um, motive for writing this. Any, any other observations? Yeah. Yeah. My- Probably, that, yes. Does quote the the I thirst, but it also refers to essentially the the sins of humanity. Jesus is like drowning in the sins of humanity. That all that water of evil is was washing over him. And I thought the contrast between thirsting for water and drowning in the in the bad water of our now, that's really good. Um, and and let's, we'll, we'll go with that a little bit here. Um, so if you're okay with it, I'd like to sort of put Romana Cesario away for a little while and just sort of in, in, in think about the text. Just think about the text um, on its own. So you, you have, everybody have a Bible? Who needs a Bible? Anybody else need, need another one? Okay, so to, let, here's what we'll do. Open up to John 19. And you may remember a couple weeks ago we read this part of John 19 because this is where the text about Jesus' mother is. And you'll uh, hopefully you'll remember um, some of the observations we made. But I want to read it again. And, and the question we're going to ask is how does this verse, these verses about Jesus' thirst, fit into the context of what's going on in, in John 19? So here's the, here's the text again, starting at verse uh, verse 17. You've heard this before, but l- listen one more time. 19, verse 17. Uh, Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay. So again, we we asked this, we we answered this question two weeks ago. But what seems to be the theme? What's sort of the, what is John trying to accomplish here in in chapter 19? Fulfilling Fulfilling the scriptures. Left and right. Right? All over the place. Now, um, what does that mean to you? I'm, I'm, I, was, I was thinking about this a little bit, parsing that out in a little bit more detail. What is, what does it mean, this is a tricky question, and I, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the scriptures, or for these events to fulfill the scriptures? Authenticity, what was prophesied. Okay, so the Old Testament writers said something, and uh, it happened. Right? So it, it verifies their prophecy. Okay? Good. Yeah. Anything else? I see now what's interesting. Oh, go ahead, Jan. Well, the other half of it is when they were about to nail him to the cross, they offered him a drink, and he refused. It wasn't time yet to do that. It's, um, it's in Mark. Yeah. Right. And it said they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Yeah, right. So, it would be, um, reconciling John and Mark. And, and, well, in fact, this, this episode appears in, in all of the Gospels. Um, Jesus receiving a drink. Um, uh, understanding the relationship between what the different authors are doing is, is an interesting, interesting task. Um, But with John, it's evident that he's trying to show us how the Scriptures are fulfilled. Now, what's unique? What's unique here about Jesus receiving a drink compared to the rest of the the places where the Scripture is fulfilled in John 19? It's not quoted. quoted. You don't know what the Scripture is. We don't know what the Scripture is, right? It's not explicit. John quotes it in in the rest of the places where the Scripture is fulfilled. He tells us what the quotation is. Carol. And it almost seems in verse 28, that is it, and Jesus knowing that all things are not finished, you know, that, that there's a correlation between being admitted to a thirst mm-hmm. and everything being finished. Sure. Yeah. That's right. Perfect. Okay, so this is great. So, uh, um, what you said, somewhere in the scripture is all tied together, and I, I, this is what I'll pose to you. It is an invitation. These other, these other places where scripture is quoted, um, is also, there are also invitations for us to understand those texts and the context that they fall fo- in. But this one especially, where, the, where it's not quoted, is an invitation for us to search the scriptures and find out how it's fulfilling the scriptures. Holly. Yeah. He's giving you this big picture, and it's up to you to go with your eagle eye and go seek out... That's exactly right. You've got... The, he, he puts a lot of work on your plate, right? It's, uh, he's, he gives you a task, and, he, and it's, the task is rooted in the scriptures, okay? Uh, Barb. He's probably saying the same thing in a different way, but it, it, he really stresses that this, is, this was a plan all along. Okay. That's the way God has planned it. Good. Okay. That's perfect. So um, th- now this is this is one of the things uh, um, I wanted to point out when it comes to Jesus fulfilling the scriptures. You could think of it as Jesus is sort of manipulating his circumstances. He says, "Oh, that's right. There's that scripture about me thirsting. I'm going to say I thirst." Right? <laughs> it's it. Uh, that would be one way that I mean he'd be, he's, he's he's making the prophecy be fulfilled. In fact, the way that the church understood this, the, way, the reason why John is applying these scriptures is because he looked at what happened to Jesus and said, hey, they said that was going to happen, and in fact it did, right? And that means that Jesus is, so the word fulfilling is so great, it means Jesus is filling up the scriptures with, uh, with, the, with meaning that uh, was, was sort of missing before, the, the answer to the questions that were asked in scripture. Marilyn? Well, I was thinking about how Jesus on the way to Emmaus uh, was talking to those disciples, yeah. and pointing out to them how this fulfilled the scripture, and I think it was essential to um, Jewish people believing. Yeah. People who hadn't been convinced before. Absolutely. So uh, in Acts, when the apostles go out, what they always do, this is, this is why Acts is kind of a unique e- uh, evangelistic text for us, because they go to the synagogues of the Jews, and they say, look, Jesus is the one that the scriptures have been talking about, right? They're, they're saying, they're trying to prove that. Jesus, the one the scriptures have been talking about, he rose from the dead. That's all, that's all they have to do, because the Jews believe the scriptures, right? So if Jesus is the fulfillment, then great, you've got the guy, right? It's a different kind of evangelical, evangelistic task than we have, where the scriptures aren't even taken for granted among so many people, right? Um, good. Okay, so let's undertake this task. Let's probe the Scriptures. Um, how, does, how does Jesus' thirsting fulfill the Scriptures? Or how does this... It's not just Jesus saying, I thirst, but it's this whole thing. Jesus uh, says, I thirst, and they offer him sour wine on a sponge, on a hyssop branch. How does that fulfill the Scriptures? And I don't mean for you to have to answer that concretely. What does that remind you of? I think it's punctually humanity. Okay. Good. Good. And uh, this we see in, in Psalm 69 a bit. We'll get to that in just a minute. Ellen, like Ellen was talking about that before. Absolutely. I've got a, a, what I think is a fun exercise with Psalm 69. We'll do that in just a bit here. Holly. Um, go back to the book? Yep. Yeah. I really like how we about Great. temporal thirst that we have is fulfilled with this you know with Jesus's yeah um, fulfillment our thirst is was never unsatisfied anymore. You know, we won't be thirsty anymore. Right. So you could say I mean one one way to say it poetically is Jesus thirsts so that we so that we don't thirst. And then you see it you see it come in the in the next section where out of his side flows blood and water, right? And what is that water other than the, the the living water that when you drink from that fountain you never thirst again. It's the stream that we read it in the psalm this morning in uh, morning devotion. The the river that makes glad the city of God. The it's it's quoted in Ezekiel. Uh, we hear about this river um, watering the temple and in Revelation it waters the temple. Um, Jesus satisfies satisfies our thirst. Let's look at John four. This I think is a really interesting connection to make and it's an and it's an essential one one of the things uh one of the things that i dislike about john (laughs) if i can say that um he's really challenging because it's all connected you have to in order to get john you have to know the whole thing and it's really hard to do it's hard to keep it all in your mind at once it's really hard (laughs) um so that means that john 4 is connected to john 19 um So, we we know this story. Um, Let me read it just briefly to you. I'll read read it to you. Um, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees, John 4, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then you know how the episode proceeds with her, him identifying that she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is, no longer, is not her husband. And she says, she goes back and tells everybody, This man told me everything that ever happened to me. And the disciples come by and they say, What are you doing talking to that lady? And... Uh, <laughs> And then and then they then they leave they leave town. Okay? So um, one way to pose the next question is what are the connections between John four and what we read in John nineteen? What connections do you see? And Okay. And struggling to to get that need. Sure, okay. So so um when he shows up in John four here, what's the first thing he says to the woman? Give me a drink. I mean he basically says, I'm thirsty, right? Uh okay. Now what else? Anything else? Cindy. Well, we get our home. So he's thirsty because his water is going up. Right. Well, I, you know, so, I mean, so we, he suffers thirst so that, in order to 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 satisfy our thirst. But the great thing about Jesus, just like the baptismal font, remember pa- Pastor Nelson did this great thing with the kids where he uh, took out several gallon, five gallon buckets of water out of the font and was talking to the kids and then turned around and the font had filled up again and it was all, his, his, you know, it's never going to run out. And that's precisely how it is, right? So even when Jesus thirsts... Now, this is the thing in John 4. He says to the woman, Look, I'm thirsty. And she says... Um, what is she, she replies, why, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. And he, sa- he just ignores the question altogether. He says, If you knew who was telling you that he's thirsty, what, what would you do? You would ask him for a drink. Even though he's thirsty, you would ask him for a drink. Okay? So not only is he thirsty and not only does he not have a bucket to draw from the, the well, but he's talking to the wrong person. But still, she should ask him for a drink, right? So on the cross, when Jesus thirsts, when Jesus says, I thirst, do we look to quench his thirst? His his for yeah. His his yeah. Yeah. Right. Were you going to say something, Holly? Well, yeah. Right. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But um, it, 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 John is—I mean—the connection is really the connection is really strong here. What else? Are there, do you see anything else in this text in John four that that connects us to the cross? Yeah. Right. Right. So uh, I mean, uh, it will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So I mean, the image—this really graphic image we get from John—you see it portrayed in, in in art all the time, and it's it's beautiful. Right, because um, it has to be seen in so many ways. Um, the spring of water coming from Jesus' side, right, which pours into us—a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Um, good. Anything else, Tina? It was all about the same time. Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was all about the same time. The details in John are never insignificant. So um, you would think, when you read the crucifixion. That all of these things, oh, it was about the twelfth hour, about the sixth hour, and he was thirsty. You could say, "Oh, this is just somebody writing down the, the facts." That's not John. John is not like that. <laughs> and so when he tells us it was about the sixth hour, um, he's giving us a clue. He's saying this is going to be a, this is this is going to be an interpretive framework. You're gonna you're gonna need to remember this story when you see Jesus on the cross. Okay, all right, everybody on board. Does that make sense? Yeah, so in, in, John, in John 4, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. I mean, in the comment, you can either say, well, that's, why, why do I need to know that? Maybe, it's, maybe I need to know it because it's really hot and he, that's why he's thirsty. Or maybe John is telling me it's the sixth hour because uh, in John 19, let's see, where is it? 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Right? Okay? So the time notice is, I mean, it's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's about the same time. Okay? Good. Now, um, think about, I'm just going to push this a little bit further because John 4 is such an interesting, such an interesting text. Um, what are the stories, do you remember the stories that come before John 4. There's not much that comes in John before Nicodemus. Okay, and what's Nicodemus all about? Born again. Born of water and the Spirit. Okay, so already, already in uh, the story of Nicodemus, we, we know how important water is. And we know... Yeah, that's right. Okay, perfect. And so now, if you're, if you're going to draw a connection between the wedding of Cana and Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman, what's the connection? Okay, there's... Okay, right, perfect. Yeah, water turned into wine, right? Um, what else? What usually happens at wells in the Bible? When you meet your... Your future spouse, right? Rachel, Jacob and Rachel. Isaac's, uh, Isaac, Abraham's servant, goes and meets Rebecca at the well. Moses and his, his uh, Zipporah, right? That's what you do at wells. You meet your... The bride, the bridegroom, and the bride. What's that? We, we, do... we have wells. <laughs> Good. Okay. So you see. So, so what are the themes we've got here? We've got we've got marriage, right? And Christ, the bridegroom, meeting his bride at the well, and his Gentile bride, right, outside the church, not the Jews. I mean, the Jews are there, but it, it's everybody. Now, we've got water, and in Nicodemus, it's not just water, but water. And the Spirit, right? So water and the Spirit are insepar- inseparable. So if you if you ask Jesus to drink, He's going to give you the Spirit, right? The water He gives you gives you the Spirit. Also have his baptism. And you have, yep, b- baptism is uh, baptism is sort of the uh, the undercurrent beneath all of this. And this, by the way, goes all the way back. This is not unique to John. You remember how John begins? In the beginning was the Word. At which time he tells us. Okay, if you're going to understand what's coming in John, what's coming in the rest of the story, you have to remember, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. How were things at the beginning? Do you remember before, before there was anything? What was there? The Spirit hovering over the water, right? This is the connection between the Spirit and the water is integral, okay? You get the water, you get the Spirit, right? But not, it's not the kind of water you think. It's not the kind of water that's going to satisfy Jesus' thirst. It's the kind of water that Jesus gives. Got it? Okay? Great. Any? Yeah, Julie. I have a question about um, that's not related to that, but um, so when you said that the details are important, yes. that made you think about like the visits. Like, why would they say physics, brands? Is that like the currency of the physics? Yes. Like, visit, or, like, why right. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, it's, it's a peculiar detail, right? The other gospels don't. Don't share that detail. And there's, some, there's this interesting... I don't know much about botany. We need Don Orton here, I think. Um, but I don't think hyssop is particularly well suited for... It's not a reed that you could stick something on, but the fact that, that the hyssop was involved is not for the function of getting the sponge to his mouth, but for reminding us that, uh, that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, right? Jan. The footnote in my study Bible used to sprinkle blood at the Passover. Yeah. So it was used at the first Passover. That's what sprinkled the blood on the door. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then it's quoted in the, in the Psalm. Wash me with hyssop and I'll be... Cl- cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be white as, whiter than snow. Yeah. Psalm 52, 51, right? Good. Um, great. Great. Let's do, okay, so here's the next thing. Now, this gets even better. I love this. I hope, you, I, this is great. This is so much fun. Um, there, there are all kinds of texts that tell us how important water is, and I would, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to write them down on the board, and you can look them up in your own time, because we've got to do this thing with Psalm 69. Uh, and if we have some time at the end, we'll, we'll look at these. But um, in Ezekiel, if you've ever, ever read Ezekiel, you might have been, I mean, to like read it from beginning to end. You might have been scandalized at various points. It's not a very pretty, not a very pretty story until you get to the end. Um, at the end, you get Ezekiel has this vision of the new temple. Now, this is really important for John because, okay, here's the other place in John where we get water. In John chapter seven, it's this it's this remarkable thing that happens. The disciples say. We're going to the we're going to Jerusalem for the festival, and and he, they say you're going to come along with us. He says no, I'm not going to come along. And then later he comes along, and while they, while he's at the festival, it's the feast of the, the feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths. He stands up, and this was a, in later in later times. This was such a uh, an impressive feast. They would carry buckets of water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple mount and pour them out above the temple mount, and they. Uh, historians writing about it say, say that the, it was a people would light torches and the whole city the whole city would be illuminated by the torches. Right. So Jesus goes up in, in the temple and he says, "Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me, and I will give him to drink." Right. So he's now substituting himself for the streams that are flowing out of the temple, and then he says, "I am the light of the world." Right. You see all this light around you. I am the light of the world. So, uh, in John, Jesus is taking the place of the temple, right? He is, he is uh, the temple from which the river flows that, that, that make glad the city of God. Um, so, Jesus is the, the new temple. And if you, And why is that? I mean, we can parse that out even more in more detail. What happens in the temple? Sacrifices are made. God comes to his people in mercy. Um, God's presence is there. Jesus is the eternal presence of God with his people. We don't need a building made with stones. Be, those stones will be knocked so that not one stone stands upon another. But I tell you, in three days, I will rebuild this temple. And he was talking about the temple of his body. Okay? So in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this... He has kind of, It's like the kind of thing where you have to listen to, uh, <laughs> to Pink Floyd backwards to sort of... Uh, to, to understand what's going on. But then you get to, Ezekiel, to the end of Ezekiel and uh, you um, get this beautiful image of the new temple. And in, in Ezekiel 47, there's this vivid description of the river flowing out. So get, if you get a chance to read this, it's really, it's gorgeous. Um, and then the same thing is true uh, in Isaiah 55. Come to me all who are thirsty, right? Um, uh, why, do you, why do you pay for that which is not, which is not food, um, why do you give money for that which will not satisfy you? Come to me, and I will, um, I will satisfy you. And then in Zechariah, we get more talk of water, and the river satisfying, cleansing. Okay. And then in Revelation, it all comes together. So remember, John wrote Revelation, right? And John, uh, in Revelation, especially chapters 22 and 20, 21 and 22, we get we get this new temple imagery brought back. Um, and it's, it's all about Jesus in the, in the kingdom um, supplying this water. Okay. Now what we need to do, I'm going to hand these out. Um, let's see here. So this is Psalm 69. And I wanted it all on one page because I think it's helpful. So I'm sorry that it's small. The text is small. Um, but I wanted it all on one page so that you could see it all together. Now, those of you who are not at a table might might have a challenge here, but we can make do. Can I can I hand this to you okay. and have you? Thank you. I also, so it, I think also a pen would be helpful. Anybody need a pen? Crans work too. Anybody else need a pen? Oh, you got a. Oh, look at that. Carol's got a stash. Okay. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, we, we saw that John is tying things together for us. These, these pieces are all fit together. But he's also talking about specific scripture. And, and I, although he doesn't quote it, I, I'm of the opinion, along with some, and many commentators and Ellen, that uh, Psalm 69 <laughs> is the scripture that, uh, Jesus, that John is talking about. And I think you'll see it. I think you'll see it. Um, Psalm 69 is important for John. And if you and you'll get bonus points if you catch the other parts of, of Psalm 69 that are quoted in John. Okay, um, but here's how we. He, he, this is my strategy for uh, reading us for uh, meditating on a psalm. It's it's a, psalms are sophisticated works of literature, and uh, their structure is really important. And you have it broken up into into paragraphs. There, those paragraphs are um, you can tell by the meter of the Hebrew. Uh, where the divisions probably should come. So you get, just like in, in, in English poetry, you get, um, you know, couplets and and, and so forth. Um, it's, so you get that kind of stuff. Um, and what you have to do is ask yourself about each stanza. How can I summarize this? What does this stanza say? So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back through. And so we'll mark them one through whatever. I didn't mark them how many there are. Um, But we need to summarize them, okay? So here's the whole thing. Listen to the whole thing, and then we're going to go back through and and do them one at a time. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I not steal? What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I be- made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Okay, so then there's a lot. There's a lot there. Let's um, let's break it apart a little bit. Start with the first stanza, and we need we need to summarize it in few words. So like. Less than ten words. What do you got? I am drowning. I'm, drowning. Drowning. Yeah. I'm weary and I'm waiting. Okay, let's just go with "I'm drowning." Okay. Let's, let's do that. I'm, am drowning. Okay. Uh, what kind of a what kind of a what kind of a sentence is that? What um what kind of talk is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a complaint. Right, I am drowning. Okay. Two. What's number two? I am persecuted. Okay, okay. I'm persecuted. Um, let's get a little bit more detail. That's right. I'm persecuted. Why? Um, unjustly. Persecuted unjustly, without cause. And in fact, without cause is is good because John quotes this. Jesus quotes this in John 15. Um, It's one of the promises that we wish Jesus hadn't made. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Uh, Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. But then 15, verse 24 and 25, if I, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Okay? So, uh, Jesus had to be innocent. Had to be hated without cause. Had to be persecuted unjustly. Okay. Good. Three. Three. This one's tough take a stab at it. it me, uh, I right, is out, you know, Right. New <laughs> that. yeah, right. Um, right. Let's see. And I guess I mean there. in in some sense there are two things going on. So it, that, that <laughs> verse, yeah, verse 8 is, it, that's, that does ring of um, who are my mother and my brothers, those who listen to my word and, and do, and do it, right? Um, also a sense of, uh, again, and worry, a worry, and concern that what I do, or actually what I fail to do is going to be to others okay uh, good. Um and it's not so it's not what he fails to do, but what is it Well let me carry everybody's sins is what I took from it. That's the verse seven. Okay. Jesus says, Let me carry everybody's sins. Um well now so that that for your sake that for your sake is for God's sake. Oh. For God's sake he's born reproach. Oh. So so um He's concerned that uh, others will be put to shame, others will lose faith. His, his, and, and he's seen that his brothers and his mother, um, his mother's sons, have, have, have abandoned him, right? So his prayer is that that wouldn't happen, that the, that the faithful wouldn't be put to shame, wouldn't become ashamed of their trust because he suffers, right? So, look, I'm a righteous person and I'm suffering without cause, don't let that be a stumbling block to. That's more than ten words. Don't let that be a stumbling block to, to others. Can we can we condense that? What do you think? It doesn't have to be a complete sentence either. Yeah. Okay. Or um, yeah. Let, let not others take offense. Or how about let not others be offended? Right. So. Now this is uh, this is. A really interesting petition, and it's uh, it's really insightful. Um, I can't talk and write at the same time. Let not others be offended. So when, and this is really what we face as Christians, right? Jesus, our, our hope, our great hope is Jesus dying on the cross, right? Um, which is the last thing anybody wants to trust in, right? A savior who gets killed, right? A savior who is, a, who is forsaken by God. Is evidently forsaken by God, right? So his petition, his petition here is that um, the psalmist's petition is that the reproach that he suffers on account of his trust in God wouldn't wouldn't be harmful to the others who trust in, to others who trust in God. Okay. Good. Stanza four. Do you recognize this? Where does this show up? Yeah. Right. So John quotes this. Uh, no, the disciples remember, it seems, later, um, and when Jesus cleanses of the temple, they quote, this, they quote this psalm, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Which, um, again, rings all of these, uh, these images uh, of Jesus being the temple, the new temple, right? Zeal for your house has consumed me. So the house that's been turned into a den of robbers, that's no, that's no good anymore. Where grace is peddled as uh, a, a commodity, um, here it is in my, in my sacrifice. Um, that's, my zeal is is found in in that uh, but what's, let's let's sum this up humiliation a reproach. right yeah a is a great word and that's that's a word that gets um, used a lot this humiliation uh, has made him a, a reproach. So this is sort of explaining what was was said in the, the third stanza. So don't let others be offended because it's because you know I did all of these things out of devotion. I, I humbled myself, and that's why I'm I'm being reproached. I put on sackcloth and I became a byword. I humbled my soul, my soul with fasting, and it became my reproach. Um, all the all the the drunkards make songs about me because. Because I follow, because I, I you know, I, I humble myself before, before God. Um, okay. You see how this is progressing? Uh, it, it starts out as this complaint and then it's this petition um, because he sees what, what a danger it is, what a danger it is when, when, the, when the godly suffer. Okay? Stanza five. You're doing great, by the way. Good work. This is, we can, these next couple we can, are really simple. Can be really simple. Yeah, save me, uh, deliver me. Okay, so now we, now the petition is, let's take care of this problem. Stanza six. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and, and all of those things are connected. So, there's, in the Psalms, there's always this really vivid image of the direction that God's face is pointed, right? So if God is, if God is turned away from you, then you're, you don't have his mercy. You've been abandoned, right? So um, he, he pleads that God would not, not hide his face, that his face would be turned towards him that, so that he would hear an answer. So that he would hear an answer to his petitions, right? Um, answer me. Okay? Seven... No one else is helping, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, uh, except, uh, so, So uh, you're, my you're my only hope. Okay, help me, Obi-Wan. Okay, all right, you're my only hope. Sorry, that's terrible. Right, you're exactly right. Um, you're my only hope, right? God knows my reproach. Everybody else is failing. They give me, look at this, I'm thirsty, and they give me sour wine to drink. They, they feed me poison, Okay, which is, which uh, points out again to us, you know, that in John, um, is more going on than just Jesus being thirsty and him being satisfied with some with sour wine. The sour wine is not is not cutting it. In fact, it's a sign of the fact that nobody's nobody's willing to help him. Okay. Now, this is just remember, this right here at the end of this stanza, is where we get Jesus saying, "I thirst." If we're we're thinking chronologically here, I thirst, okay? Now, verse, stanza 8. Again, this one could be really simple. Smite them. Vindicate me, right? Vindicate me. Now, this is perhaps a bit perplexing for us, considering one of the other words we heard from Jesus, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um... This tension between, between Jesus, who is um, nothing other than the per- perpetual mercy of God, um, uh, com- sort of pulls against, um, kicks against the, the justice of God um, that David calls for. Vindicate me against my enemies. And that's a righteous, it's a righteous thing. For, for, and, and, and Jesus talks that way in John. We heard it in John 15. He says, look, they hate me, Right? They hate me, um, and now they're guilty of sin because I did these works among them, right? And so, the vindication isn't out of isn't out of spite, isn't out of um, isn't out of hatred. In fact, it's it's a call for uh, justice. Finally, them receiving what they want, right? What they desire, what they seek. Holly. Yeah. So, bring God to the temple they wouldn't see their, their things as a way to God if they would me. That's right. Um, not Jesus. yes. No, you're right. Um, so it, it, so what is the benefit? What is the benefit of their tents becoming a desolation? They can't become any desolation and they lose their tents. They have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to go, right? Yeah. Nowhere to go but Jesus. Um, I, I wish I had brought it with me. There's this uh, great quotation. I'll bring it next time. Um, this fellow, this fellow who's writing about the conscience, talks about um, how, uh, it, how about how when you hit the bottom, when you hit the bottom, that God is willing even to risk souls, even to risk souls to save a soul, and yet other souls in order to save those souls that He's risking. And it's the kind of God who even. Uh, would risk him out himself, his own soul, his own self to save uh, souls. And so uh, it tells us about the the, the role of this justice, which drives, which drives those who hate him down because lifting them up isn't going to do them any good, right? That hatred isn't go, doesn't go away by, by lifting them up, right? But the hope is, the great hope, the last hope is that they're, uh, the, this is the perspective of the fellow writing on conscience, the last great hope is that, their consciences would, would so drive them to despair that they have nowhere else to turn, right? They have, no, they have nowhere to hide, nowhere to, to seek con- consolation. That's what they say about like and like They've got to hit the bottom. Yeah. Till your nose hits, scrapes the bottom of the barrel, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, so, and, and so, I mean, even in... This is one of the beautiful things about when you, when you have Christ as your lens for reading the scriptures. Even in this call for justice and vindication, you can see... God's great mercy, right? So uh, one of the best examples of this is uh, there's this terrifying thing that happens when Saul sins against God. He sins three times, and the third time is the last straw, and Samuel, the prophet, is livid. He's like, you, have, you messed up royally. And, uh, and, and uh, he says, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And then the, uh, the, the, the narrator says, um, the Spirit of the Lord... Left, departed from Saul, and God sent an evil spirit to him, right? That's terrifying. Now, what comes immediately afterwards is really interesting. God sends also to Saul to comfort him when he's suffering from this evil spirit, David, playing the liar, right? Um, who, who has the spirit of God. He's been anointed. He's been anointed with the spirit of God, right? So even when, he, even when God drives those who hate him, those who push against him, when he drives them down, um, it's only ever for the sake of lifting them up, right? So, in the hopes that they would, they would, they would finally uh, realize they've struck bottom. Okay, uh, let's. We got two more. What are we on? Verse nine. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's worth. I think we're past the, the plea now. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, so, now this is one of the beautiful things about so many psalms is they start with a petition and they end with praise for answered prayer, right? Um, uh, and, and look, I'm going to do this because this is what, this is what God, what pleases God. When I thank, when I thank Him, when I magnify Him, um, and when the, when the humble see it, this is what's going to revive them, right? So, I'm going to thank God. Um, and what's, What's remarkable about this is, is always it happens in the in the course of a psalm, in the course of a prayer. He turns from despair to thanksgiving, and then his thanksgiving, the last verse. What does that transform into? Everybody, right? Everyone's going to everyone praise him. Okay. So last thing here. Um, note, notice where um, Jesus on the cross. Is, is stuck in this psalm. Here's here's here are all of the things that Jesus suffers. I'm drowning. I'm persecuted unjustly. Um, he prays for he pray, he the high priestly prayer in John 17. Um, he prays that he would that he would lose none of the, the, those who've been given to him. Okay. Um, humiliation is made me approach. Deliver me. Answer me. Right. Um, answer my prayer. You're my only hope. And then this is where we get Jesus on the cross. And what happens next? He's vindicated the resurrection, life, um, and the gospel to the rest of the world, right? So um, John is inviting us to to, to see this whole psalm and to see where this particular moment fits into into the the story of Jesus um, in this psalm, right? How Jesus fills up this psalm. And this point on the cross right before he right before he gives up his spirit is is the crucial is the turning point right this is where um, where jesus answers where God answers his prayer okay um, since, uh, to be part of his to that's that's a really good I like that idea. I say yes, it can be that yeah, that's great, yeah yeah. And and all, I mean and also his resurrection is a vindication, right? So the grave couldn't hold him, right? But he has he has thrown off the chains. Okay, I've kept you too long. We got to go. Let's pray. Any questions? Okay, there's a bookmark over there for next week. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done